I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Pete Morgan. Pete is a CSO and co-founder at Phylum, a software supply chain startup helping companies identify and resolve the risk in their third-party libraries. Before Phylum, Pete founded Clever Security, taking his experience from Burby and Optiv to help clients tackle difficult problems. In the episode, we discuss the variety of vulnerabilities in the software supply chain, how Phylum builds on traditional software composition analysis capabilities, and how events like the Ukraine war can impact the public trust of open source packages. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. We'll get to Phylum, obviously, but before we get there, I want to hear a little bit more about Clever, which, to my understanding, was this sort of R&D-focused organization that you'd spun up, I think it was back in 2016. And again, my understanding is you were just focused on kind of researching and, and solving some of the difficult technical challenges that come within the security ecosystem. I mean, tell me a little bit more about how this came together. Sure. Um, Clever was kind of born out of an accident. Um, I spent the early part of my career doing a ton of consulting uh, in the security space, starting out with like NetPen, then moving into AppSec and reverse engineering and exploit dev. Um, when I went to Matasano in Chicago, I really, really ramped, uh, got to learn from some really impressive mentors out of the Chicago office there. Then moved on to Akivant, where I was running a practice um, in the vulnerability, uh, sorry, in the uh, vulnerable research and product research and applied research spaces. Um, so after I left Akivant, or it's turned into Optiv, really, um, I had a bunch of strong customer relationships and spun up Clever just to kind of help those customers out. And this ended up being, man, one of the most fun parts of my life, to be honest. Uh, I got to pick these projects. They were all really, really interesting. Um, tons of reverse engineering, source code auditing, um, software-defined radio, hardware reverse engineering, just the most interesting stuff I could get my hands on. And um, I got to do that for a while. It was really, really fun. But I found out that I, I kind of missed working with people um, on a day-to-day basis. And um, one of the elements I learned <laughs> the hard way of the consulting practice is it's very difficult to scale those businesses if you want to kind of build it into something you know, significant. Um, so I kept that, that uh, as a very small shop with just a couple people and uh, then moved on and went to Bolden and uh, then to start filing. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but did I see that Clever still exists to some capacity today? Yes, it's still, it's not closed. I, 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 uh, I still answer questions for some customers and will like sure. comment on some of their reports if they need help. Um, but it's not like an active thing. It's really, I'm trying to push forward anymore with, with uh, priority, priority being on filing. Sure. And so how did that potentially play into the origins of Phylum, which I think was 2020 or so, if I'm remembering correctly? How yeah, did correct. maybe some of the the projects that you worked on back at Clever inform some of those hard technical challenges that you then wanted to actually build a company around? Sure. Um, in a lot of ways, actually, I think one of the ones that jumps out is I got to do a lot of work at Clever with some of the major medical device manufacturers. Um, mm. I built relationships with them for a long time and looking at how one has to defend a medical device 
is a very, very different set of challenges than in most other areas. Um, frequently, they're, especially if they're implanted, these are low power devices. They don't have tons of compute. Their battery requirements are enormous. So you have a very, very limited platform, but you have to do some serious security in order to defend those devices. Um, when you look at how those devices are made and the software is built and pushed out to them, um, that supply chain really comes into emphasis in thinking about the lifetime of one of these devices. And when we were starting up the idea for Phylum, um, I was able to think back to kind of th that experience and it was very informative in challenges that I saw these companies trying to solve for the last 30 plus years um, and how the change in software development now is kind of affecting everybody else as well. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the challenge of medical devices and the and the battery constraints in particular. There was a startup I worked at a, a while back now that was trying to detect malware by essentially observing variants in terms of power usage and saying, hey, this is what a device is using in terms of power on a normal day, which means if that's spiking all of a sudden, maybe it's performing some extra work that might be indicative of malware. So that's I, an interesting idea. Tying this yeah. all back to <laughs> tying this back to phylum here. I mean, you are mentioning this challenge that you're recognizing within medical devices, but phylum's not specifically focused on medical devices. So what was it that then inspired the, the phylum specific idea that came about? The, the origination of the story and the inspiration behind it is actually from my two co-founders, uh, Louis Lang and Aaron Bray. So I ran into Aaron we worked together at another startup, and then he introduced me to Lewis. Uh, both of those guys came from the intelligence community of the United States government. So they did a bunch of secret squirrel work, a lot of things they can't talk about. But um, one of the projects they did tell me about, they worked on, was kind of analyzing um, the supply chain of software that was coming into the government from third-party contractors, which, as we know, happens all the time. It's kind of how a lot of the software development is really done. And the way they were trying to analyze it for malicious code insertion was, uh, let's just say, sophomoric. Um, and at the time, they looked into the available products in the space, and they saw lots of options in the software composition analysis market, or SEA, which were looking for vulnerabilities, but they didn't have any capabilities to look for malicious code insertions. And this was a huge problem for the government at the time. And this is where the, the origination of the idea for Phylum kind of came to be. As Aaron and I were working together, uh, we got to talking about uh, this idea and then went down a whole series of rabbit holes and got super excited. And right when the pandemic hit, we were ready to, uh, to start a company. Hmm. So uh, talk me through this space a little bit further because the whole software supply chain security market has certainly, I would say, exploded over the last couple of years. We talked before the episode started about the executive order around S-bombs and how that's triggered just a, a whole host of different startups that are spinning up in this space. But your company at Phylum isn't really a traditional software composition analysis company, which is more focused on the kind of open source packages and understanding vulnerabilities that exist within those. You're trying to take that a step further. So how do you delineate Phylum from those kind of existing offerings? Sure. I think the kind of historical aspect kind of informs a lot here. When we started plugging computers into networks, 
we learned how to scan networks for ports and identify vulnerabilities. Then development moved to web applications, and we learned how to scan web applications and find vulnerabilities. Um, when the SCA market kind of stood up, it was actually born out of open source licenses. Vulnerabilities then became the next thing that was added because we've seen this in other domains of software security. The question that Phylum answered, asked differently uh, when we started the company was, instead of asking what the vulnerabilities in this open source package are, we changed that to, we know this is untrusted code from a stranger on the internet. What could go wrong here? What are the risks in using untrusted code from a stranger? And how does that change when we use it in automation? Um, so this took us down a whole different path. Yes, we also identify vulnerabilities and license checks, of course, but the harder parts took a lot longer. And that is to find things like malicious code, which requires a static analysis capability and dynamic analysis. Um, identifying the author risk. So who are the people that contributed to this project? What else have they done in open source? What else can we deduce about these authors and their behaviors? And then the engineering risk. So is this a well-tested package? Um, is, it, is it abandoned where? How, what is the frequency of updates? Uh, does the author respond to, to questions? Is there one author? In a couple cases in our de design partnerships, um, two different packages, two different authors. It was a package that each had one author and both of them went to jail. What do you do about that? If that's a dependency that's important to you or that dependency is a graph dominator in your dependency chain, um, you have a problem to deal with. And these are just some of the issues that um, we look at the software supply chain differently than the SCA lens because we're using the software differently today than we were five or 10 years ago. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about the author risk piece. It's a really interesting one to me because I remember back at the beginning of the Ukraine-Russia conflict, there was there were some examples that came out about uh, open source authors who were embedding malware into the code. And I think it was supposed to be kind of innocuous messaging saying, hey, support Ukraine and would pop up on these different desktops of users that were using the package, but obviously begs a bigger question, right? And so there's the question then to you, if you're tracking kind of author risk across all these different individuals, is that someone that you're then classifying as like higher risk because they've um, demonstrated the ability to add in kind of malware that's not specifically the functionality of the code? How have you addressed that whole, uh, that whole trend? Exactly spot on. Um, there is an element of this that will forever be challenging if we talk about nation state actors backstopping accounts for, um, for nation state operations use, right? They spend years and years of time to make those accounts look perfectly indeterminate from a normal human user. But that's not where the majority of the open source malicious code comes from. And to your point, these additions that authors chose to make on their own accord that then had downstream effects on companies and businesses and individuals uh, is a highlight of why the software supply chain is such a ripe attack surface. Um, we, we are kind of hoping that open source is this very collaborative, um, perfectly altruistic environment, and there is no requirement that it has to be. 
And one of the elements that is always challenging here is to see the full scope of the problem, how big a dependency graph for an average piece of software really is, how many authors that touches, how many times those authors control changes. There's a cadence on GitHub where if someone wants to turn over control of a package because they no longer want to maintain it, they just put, put an issue up and say, basically, first come, first serve. The challenge there being that whoever comes to take over control of that package now has control of your supply chain, or at least a piece of it. Um, and that was a, a big highlight to that. There wasn't a lot of uh, documented malicious activity that happened as a result of it. It was more messaging, but... Um, it was. It shows that these challenges in the software supply chain are fairly widespread. Are you seeing companies that are deciding not to use specific packages because of the author that's actually responsible for writing them? I mean, I'm just thinking through the lens of a development team, right? As well as the, the security team obviously has their motives, but as a developer, if a security team was saying, hey, you can't use this important like data visualization library that's a core piece of an application uh, because one of the authors has done some bad stuff in the past or like has been presented to be a little bit more risky. How, how are customers really addressing that today? Yes, it's, uh, we are seeing that. It's not super mm. widespread. It's much more common than we would have anticipated. Mm. Um, when we built that capability, we definitely had an angle for solving some of the um, federal use cases, but we knew it would be something that commercial companies would kind of come around to. And we've been really shocked by the appetite we've seen from commercial organizations to say, we want to know where these open source authors are from. And we'd like to put some controls on um, the behaviors that these, these authors may take so we can guide uh, this program in a, in a different direction. Hmm. Okay, well, let's go back to the malicious code piece then as well, because thinking through the use cases of when organizations actually have to apply dynamic testing in addition to just static testing that's used in like traditional software composition analysis, what is the kind of additional overhead that's required for actually running those types of scans and how are organizations able to then run both of those capabilities at a cadence that's frequent enough to actually monitor all the different changes that are coming with these packages? That is a great question and pretty loaded. Um, there is a ton you can do statically when analyzing open source packages. And one of the differences that comes out when you get on this path is First, the challenge of if you try to think about things as a good package or a bad one, there is this massive gray area in between those two thresholds where it's really tough to say is this good or bad. Um, a, a somewhat simpler question to ask is, is this a legitimate open source package or illegitimate open source package? And it's different because you don't need to have the hallmarks of bad in order to say something's illegitimate. You can say there's a certain set of criteria I require to make this legitimate. I want to see that the source code contained in the package is backed by a public source code manager repository like GitHub or GitLab. Um, I want to see that the release history is there. Um, I want to see that the authors uh, 
respond to pull requests or comments, et cetera. Um, and you can look for some of these behaviors to, to, to deduce that. Now, when you're looking for malware statically, there are limits to what you can do. But um, you can also put controls around those. So if a package is loading something dynamically at runtime, usually you can see what it's going to try to load unless it's loading something completely arbitrary. Now, an open source package that loads arbitrary code at runtime looks close enough to malware where at the very least you should know about it. Um, it turns out that doesn't actually happen all that often. So um, the majority of this you can really do statically. In our approach, we focus on static analysis first and mass. So we consume all the packages the moment they're released in efforts to have our analysis done before any customer asks us about this package to get a risk analysis on. Um, there are spots where we can't necessarily resolve. They're pretty infrequent, but that's the work in our dynamic analysis piece is to uh, uh, use the dynamic components to resolve things that we can't get to properly statically. Hmm. So kind of that next level of analysis to further dive in, which I guess is almost the, the kind of phylum idea beyond just initial SCA as well, right? Is saying, hey, there are packages that have vulnerabilities, but then there's these other elements that might be indicative of malicious uh, behavior within the package. And then to your point, well, there might even be other malicious behaviors inside that that then need the dynamic testing piece. So I'm curious, breaking down that kind of distribution of issues that stem from these different packages, on like a percentage basis, maybe this is a, a tricky number to just call out off the top of your head, but it, how many packages would you say are can be identified as vulnerable just from software composition analysis versus requiring that additional depth that Phylum provides? Sure. Um, and I, 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 so the way SCA products uh, generally work is they don't actually look at code at all. They have a database of package release. This is the package name. Here's the version and the ecosystem it's from. So NPM or PyPy or RubyGems or something like that. And there's a list then of the vulnerabilities that affect that package that have been documented in places like uh, the National Vulnerability Database or GitHub Security Advisories. There's a number of these resources they're collated and deduplicated and you have a database of what the vulnerabilities are. So if a user says I'm using package A version B in this ecosystem, there's a series of database entries to come back and say, here's the vaults. Um, that's been the way this has worked pretty consistently for about 15 years. Um, there's a lot of challenges with that because just because you're using a function in that package does not mean you're necessarily vulnerable to a specific vulnerability. That's some tech that uh, Phylum's actually working on right now. We call it vulnerability. Uh, this is being done elsewhere too. Um, SEMGREP, I remember, just released a new capability in their static analysis tool that does something very similar. My hunches were doing something nearly identical. Um, but the goal is then to say, for a given vulnerability, identify the function that triggers it or the method that triggers it in the package. Now, use some call graph analysis to figure out, do you call from your source code into that package function? And at the very least, we can now prove reachability statically to say, this is a higher indicator that this vulnerability is important to you. 
Um, the corollary to that is if you can prove you don't call it, that's very important too, because you can much better prioritize that list of findings and, you know, not boil the oceans with your developers to say, go fix everything, fix the most important things. And you can have some uh, context around that. Right. The reachability analysis piece is exactly what I was about to bring up. I mean, thinking through, again, back to that kind of more data-driven piece, and, and maybe this is just an unfair question, but in addition to the the reachability piece, I mean, a function, or let's say a package is in use by an organization, and a function in that is vulnerable, I mean, what percentage of the time are there other scenarios where that package is vulnerable, but it's not being picked up by just the more traditional mechanisms? Um, that's a great question. So I actually have some slides on this from a presentation where uh, I got from a good friend that gave me the idea. Um, he tracked the number of CVEs over time in the National Vulnerability Database against the growth in GitHub's repositories publicly. And as GitHub went from 100,000 to 200 million repositories, uh, you can guess, you could probably guess the amount of vulnerability increase. And the conclusion you can draw from that analysis is either software developers got about a thousand times better or we haven't found nearly the amount of bugs that exist um, publicly, right? Hmm. And when it comes to public analysis of vulnerability databases and open source packages, the key word there is public. Um, this is what has been reported. Uh, and it's better than nothing. We have to act on those things at the very least. But, you know, the suggestion that we know about all of the vulnerabilities is... Um, uh, laughable, right? Like, I think, I think we know that. <laughs> so then thinking back to a kind of level of effort standpoint, right? There's obviously all these different packages that exist on GitHub today, sometimes for very niche use cases. But when it comes from a kind of risk prioritization standpoint, it's usually going to be the more popular packages that are in use across all these different organizations that are the key focus areas. But then at the same time, those are the ones that are more often going to have the published public vulnerabilities. So how is that something that you deal with at Phylum to make sure that you're addressing some of those outlier cases without obviously just kind of exhausting the team looking through and running the dynamic capabilities that you mentioned previously on all these kind of outlier packages? Uh, so Phylum's analysis is entirely automated. Hmm. We do not have the team. No one has the team size. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, if you turned Walmart into all of their employees into AppSec people, they couldn't do this either. Um, we watch somewhere between 50 to 100,000 new packages a day being published that go through our processing system. Um, and there's more in other ecosystems that Phylum doesn't yet support. But the idea that you can keep up with 100,000 new packages per day, every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, which in that spikes at times too, is just not a solvable thing. It has to, this has to be automated. So the way we approach that is um, we'll do research manually, identify things, and then build that in the automation. It has to work that way for us. The elements that um, change here 
are kind of watching the actors that we can identify, watching the malicious code that we can identify, and spidering out. Now, to your point about um, the kind of graph centrality problem, uh, we see all of this as a graph. Uh, dependency networks make a lot of sense in that in that regard, right? When you think about the really, really popular packages like React and uh, JavaScript or requests in Python, you know, Pandas, something like that, um, those are pretty obvious. And there's typically a lot of work put into the maintainership and control of the contributions into those projects. The interesting parts aren't really those centers of gravity as much as the stragglers attached commonly to those centers of gravity, right? So um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that can happen when you don't focus on the spotlight and then zoom out just a little bit to those, that, those next layers. And you know, the, the depth of this problem is always interesting because even though we've been working at this nonstop for years now, I'm regularly still surprised. We'll look at the graph of a set of packages and it is visually shocking um, and when you go through the depth, it it always surprises me. And this is something I try to take when I you know talk to customers or partners or about this problem is don't be upset at not being able to intuit this problem. It is difficult for people that have spent, you know, a decade of their life thinking about this stuff, and it's still not obvious, right? So let me preface this next question by saying it's awesome to see all the different open source contributors that are um, just helping build all these different software packages that are used by all these organizations. With that in mind, I'm curious, are there any specific packages where you do find just way more vulnerabilities or issues than like the common person would suggest? You mentioned this whole idea of taking a step back from maybe the main spotlight and there's some that are adjacent that might have a lot of issues within them. Any like name of a package that just people should maybe think twice about or, or just look a little bit deeper when they're using it in their organization? Um, not the name of a, spe a specific package, but the technique you just described. When you think about a package, you think about its name. One of the super popular attacks is typo squatting, where if I'm a typo squatting attacker, I find a really popular package, maybe like requests in Python, and I download that and I make a new package on PyPy, but I transpose the E and the U, I take off the S, I basically make a small typo where someone might misremember the name or maybe they mistakenly type it. And now they have my package, the typo squatting attacker, and I have influence control of their supply chain. Um, it's, it sounds, it, it doesn't sound as bad as it ends up really being. When you watch the amount of these type of squatting attacks happen day to day, month to month, it's staggering. And, and the thing I go back to is the old um, exploit mitigation experience, you know, derived over 20 years of doing this. When we watched Microsoft really improve the defenses in Windows, um, they built a lot of exploitation mitigations that were very successful in, in one area, one very important area, raising the cost of attack. Typo squatting doesn't have a cost. It is zero. You can download a script and mount typo squatting attacks constantly. Um, this is one of the problems. And you know, as a as a victim, you only have to get caught once. So this is something where you know you got to be constantly monitoring to kind of catch that stuff. 
yeah, admittedly, I've been on the the wrong end of just mistyping a npm install command and sure. uh, ended up with something adjacent and don't think I've ever stumbled into anything malicious as a result of that, but can easily see that mistake triggering something. I mean, is the the basic approach just as far as how you manage those scenarios, blacklisting all those various packages that are known typo squatting candidates. Um, and so that way the organization just can't download those to begin with. Yeah, there's a few different levels of approaching that problem. Um, we worked with the package registries themselves as we detect, um, if we detect a type of squatting candidate and it has some piece of malicious code, we would report that immediately. Our mm-hmm. goal is to have them take that down. So you know, the global supply chain is not impacted by that. Um, from an organization perspective, uh, this kind of goes into who is the target of attack in supply chain. The, the two main victims are developers or DevSecOps people, developers or DevOps people, and CICD infrastructure. So thinking about how to defend those cases, um, there's, I think, a, f- a couple other companies maybe starting to work in this area as well, but we've built a sandbox in our CLI tool to let you install packages through Phylum because we're worried about de- giving developers an option to say, I need to install this package. I can't go look at all the dependencies. At the very least, sandbox the install for me because I know most malicious code happens on install, right? Um, In that way, we're able to first consult our risk analysis and say, you know, have we found anything bad about this package so far? And even if we didn't run it through a sandbox, it's unnoticeable for speed. And at least we have some layer of protection to that developer. Uh, and we're seeing a lot more of this now, you know, I think in the industry, the whole concept of shifting further left. And when it comes to supply chain attacks, the target is the developer. So we have to kind of think about this more of an endpoint security of the developer workstation, because that's what they're trying to go after. Hmm. Let's talk about the vision and, and kind of looking ahead here. You mentioned that the reachability analysis capability is something that the team's working on. And like you mentioned, there's a couple other folks who are working on it as well. I mean, what else do you see as as kind of the the more grand future of how this all looks, right? The rate of GitHub packages that are actually being published is probably only going to increase. At an, and it's already at an absolutely astronomical rate, like you mentioned. It sounds like kind of a losing battle, but as automation progresses, then that's obviously how the defenders will fight back. I mean, what's the, again, grander ideal future in your mind? Um, so I think this is going to inevitably tie into SBOM, but I want to be clear. I don't think SBOM is in my or anyone else's like grand idea of the future. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a necessity, right? And um, the way we see this is... We have to think about open source packages from the concept of what am I going to accept in risk and what am I not? And if we can define what is acceptable and what is not, we can start enforcing that at different points in our use of the software supply chain, basically how we consume external packages from whoever on the internet. Um, And those don't have to be just open source packages. These can be Docker containers, they can, these can be uh, IAC snippets. GitHub Actions are the same thing. It's just someone else's code you're reusing in your CI/CD system. So conceptually, we want to see this from a policy perspective 
we're releasing a policy engine pretty soon to kind of demonstrate this capability. Um, but the goal is to build a policy and then enforce that ideally at the developer workstation in the CI/CD system. And then as that software goes through cycles, release cycles um, and updates. In this way, we kind of see it as, you know, filtering that fire hose of information coming in from the greater internet. Um, or maybe you could also see it as like walk, you know, navigating through the minefield. We can't necessarily control what the minefield will look like because open source can be contributed to by anyone, but we can walk, choose our path more carefully to walk through. Um, and the way I think this really ties into SBOMs uh, is, you know, this is a challenge I think everyone is going to have to deal with. Um, we're, we're talking to a lot of people that are some version of confused, scared, or upset about the requirement because it's being pushed pretty quickly. Um, but to deal with that, instead of thinking about, I just have to give all this data away, we're moving to a place where we're thinking about what are the, what are the questions the producer and consumer want answered about the data in the SBOM? And if we can align to those, define a policy that no, that can derive these answers, put that into the development process. So we know the answers to these questions as the software is being built or updated. So by the time you get done, you know, the conclusions already, and you can transmit the answers to those questions instead of just a data dump of here's this big pile of JSON that you now have to go through. Um, here's the answers that we've agreed upon are most critical for this, um, this component of this piece of software um, and try to make both sides lives easier. Hmm. Interesting. So if I'm getting the right gist of that, the idea is kind of further integrating with the development side to say, Hey, here's what we really need. And then from the security side, it's saying, here's what's acceptable. Here's what isn't, but on a more kind of fundamental level as opposed to uh, after the fact when a package is already in use matching those up so it can be solved sooner rather than after software is actually published is that essentially the right idea right it's beginning with the end in mind and if we think about um i'm going to go back to i mentioned i used to work with some medical device companies they're going to make a software update to some critical component and it's going to go to hospitals if there's an some sort of shared understanding on what that, what the critical questions they want answered by that SBOM, um, and that can be agreed upon, that can be encoded into a policy, that can be enforced in the development process. And now we're, be we're beginning with the end in mind and we're building to that state um, proactively. And now we can enforce this in automation, we can test this in automation. Um, the conclusions can be verified by the consumer, the hospital system in this case. Um, to then say, yes, I'm getting the things, I'm getting a reasonable risk acceptance from this vendor that we agreed upon and I can see this over time and I don't have to have a hundred people that I'm going to clone, uh, <laughs> try to deal with this, uh, you know, this data dump, right? Right. It sounds like almost an element of drift detection there in terms of these actual SBOMs that are, that's more enabled by that kind of improved partnership earlier on. Yeah, so, I think I think we have to define that. We'll see how that yeah. works. Yeah. Last question for you here. 
are you currently looking for investment or hiring? So we're not hiring much at the moment. Uh, we had some great success last year in building out the engineering and go-to-market team, uh, very focused on execution throughout uh, this kind of economic downturn. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of companies are a, a bit challenged right now. And uh, at the moment, not really, not really looking for investments. We, uh, I like to think we raised pretty conservatively and carefully in 2021, um, even when the market was really hot. And now uh, pushing forward to that to that next threshold. I'm very excited about. That. Awesome, awesome. Well, again, really appreciate the time, Pete. Exciting to to learn a little bit more about this space and have you really break down some of those different ideas in terms of what each of these capabilities really entails and, and kind of going behind the scenes in terms of how some of that is done and, and what the implications are for just the open source world as a whole. So can't thank you enough. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at kyle at secureventures.io. I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.